This is Darren Davis, founder and senior leader of the Harbor Church in South Florida, and you are listening to the Harbor Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and others, visit us online at harborchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I always love coming down to the harbor, not just because you guys are close to the beach, but... uh, if you don't take advantage of getting up on the, in the morning, like if you have a free morning and walking on the beach, that's where God's hanging out. I promise you. It's like this, this morning I was just, just enjoying, like thinking. You know, the presence of the Lord is everywhere. In him all things consist and he holds all things together. But there are certain places where you can perceive his presence a little clearer than others. When I hear the sound of the waves, I think of scriptures that talk about that your voice is like the voice of many waters. Some people perceive it like thunder. The reality is that he's literally holding everything together by the power of his word. And that's just who he is. It's what he's like. And, uh, and, and I love, love coming down here. Pastor Darren and Wendy and, and uh, Juan and Savannah, you guys are just, just like friends, family to us. We're just so, so, uh, so honored, honored to be here. Today, a couple of things I want to tell you about real quick before we get started. Tracy and I are doing a conference this summer called the Kingmakers Conference. It's happening in June. We've got just a few slots left for this conference. It's in a castle in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on June 26th to 29th. And a dear friend of mine, pastor uh, by the name of Jim Baker from Columbus, Ohio, uh, one of the best Bible teachers on the planet today. Uh, he and I are going to be doing this conference together. So if you're interested in getting more information about the Kingmakers Conference, you can see my wife, Tracy, if you wave everybody down there. Yay. Isn't she adorable? We've been married 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I met her when I was five. It's a true story. She's my next-door neighbor. And um, I was like telling the first words I ever heard my wife say. Uh, her mom was a belly dancer. Not ballet dancer, belly dancer. And she danced with a sword on her head. Um, it was kind of a routine. And she was practicing her sword dance in a trailer. Ponder that for a moment. Bumped into something, the sword fell off her head and stabbed her in the leg. So Tracy, at the age of five, comes running next door to the brand new neighbors, who is us, knocks on the door, and my mom opens the door. And this terrified little girl says, can you come help us? My mama stabbed herself with a sword. And I'm like, I'm absolutely terrified. So I had to marry her, just had to. So now I've been married 30 years later. We got married at the age of 18, went straight, straight into ministry, straight to Bible college. We got married so early because, so young, because uh, it was cheaper to go to Bible college as a couple. So that worked out. Yeah. At least that's what we told everybody. No, it's true, it's true. So uh, now we got two kids, grown, grown children. They live in Austin, Texas, and San Diego, California. Um, we wrote a book about marriage. After 30 years of marriage, we decided to write a book. It's called The Four People You Marry, all right? And the four people are the person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they actually are right now at this point in their journey, and the person that they are becoming. Problems arise in marriage when you fall in love with one or two out of the four. When the other ones show up, and I promise you they will, you might think to yourself, what in the world have I done? Uh, I didn't sign up for this. I got fooled. And 
uh, this, this book is a journey. It's a book, a book on how to journey together through the transitions that are inevitable in every covenant and how to make your covenant as strong as it possibly can be. So that's back. That's going to be back there. Uh, there's a book we got back there. It's been around for a while called Reckless Grace based on John chapter 20, verse 23. Jesus says an amazing phrase right after the resurrection. He says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven as if he has given you and I the power to steward and broker the grace of heaven in a way that can literally set people free from the chains and bondage of sin. You are, listen, you are not the source of grace. He is. But you are the resource because the source lives in you. First John chapter 4, verse 15. There's a really beautiful little scripture that says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, and then there's a comma. Whoever confesses Jesus is the son of God, comma, right after that it says, God lives in him and he in God. And you can confess Jesus is the son of God right now in a second. You might say that and believe it in your heart and then spend the next 30, 40, 50 years climbing over that comma to realize what it means to have no distance and no separation between you and God. Because you can be a believer in Jesus in a moment by faith, but you will not be a disciple in a moment by faith. And Jesus didn't tell us go make believers or converts. He said, go make disciples. A disciple is someone who says yes to Jesus, not just today, but every single moment of every day. Your yes is a resounding, uh, emanating sound from your spirit that resounds throughout all of creation so that whenever you step into a dark area, darkness flees because the light of the world that is in you has just walked in the room. Means you change the atmosphere everywhere you go. It means you have no fear of darkness anymore. Why? Because in Christ, you too are the light of the world. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Then he looks at you and I and says, you're the light of the world. So everything that is his identity becomes our inheritance when we discover our union with Christ. And I could talk about that for months and months on end. And I do sometimes. Um, there are some uh, uh, teaching USBs back there that are many, many hours long. There's one uh, called Restoring Revelation. It's 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation from a new covenant perspective that will make Revelation the happiest book you've ever read. Because Revelation is not about the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, or even the end times, believe it or not. Revelation is a handbook for how to walk in victory over darkness in every single generation. So 10 hours of teaching on Revelation from a New Covenant perspective, and it'll melt your brain, blow your mind. It's just a fun study. Uh, there's a number of studies back there. There's a 24-hour teaching on identity, a 12-hour teaching on spiritual joy fair. Call it joy fair because it's way more fun than warfare. You get way more done too, which is true. And uh, and then there's a, a teaching back there that's brand new um, on the book of Daniel. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. We are in a weird world today, and we have been in the last couple of years. Uh, I said this last time I was here. People are going, "What is happening in our world today?" The idol of our certainty has come toppling down. We made an idol out of certainty. In other words, we have everything planned out. 
But the funny thing is, is it's, it's interesting. We say a lot of things that we express to God that we want. But then when they actually come to pass, sometimes we realize we didn't actually want what we said we wanted. I'll give you two. Two big, big things the church has been praying for for years. One big one is the church has got to get out of the walls. Okay. We all say that. And it sounds really good to say. Another one is, we want strong families. Parents are overworked. Families are scattered. They don't have time together anymore. We need strong families, and it requires that people spend time together. I don't know if you've understood what I've just said here, but both of those prayers have been answered in the last two years. The church was forced out of the walls, and businesses closed up their offices and made people go home. You know what we did? We pitched a fit about it. We want to get back in the walls and we want to get back to work. Because really, when it came down to it, what we said we wanted isn't really what we wanted. Ooh, it's quiet in here. I'm not saying God did COVID to us. He didn't, but he doesn't waste anything. And sometimes when we ask him for something... What he does is he allows a process to basically, it could be positive, it could be negative from our vantage point, but he allows a journey and a process that is forming in us, structuring in us, in formation, instruction, internal structure, internal formation. He allows a process to bring about Ultimately, the very thing that we have asked for, because he's actually interested in creating something in you. The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that day is that point in time when that, that image and likeness of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, emerges, comes to the surface and starts shining and showing up. He is absolutely committed to forming himself in you, not in your image. He's conforming you into his. And sometimes in the middle of difficult circumstances, weird, we think, oh God, I give my life to you, Jesus, now take away all my negative circumstances. And that's not what happens. I don't know if you've ever heard that or thought that. If I accept Jesus, all the bad stuff goes away. No, no, no. Now you're still in the middle of the circumstance, but suddenly you're not alone. He shows up in the middle of your suffering. I don't know if you figured this one out yet or not, but Christians suffer too. We all do. Suffering will find you. It does everybody. But when you find yourself in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, suddenly you realize you're not alone. And the Lord shows up to minister to your heart that death is nothing but a shadow and then shows you the way out of the valley. See, that's the thing about suffering as a believer is that sometimes in the middle of the darkest circumstance and season of your life, that's where you find him. He shows up because now all the distractions have been stripped away. And now we discover his presence on a deeper, more profound level. Listen, looking for suffering would be foolish. You don't have to look for it. But whether you're on the mountaintop or in the middle of the valley, he meets you there. He meets you there. 
Can I tell you? He meets you there, right? It's so good. So I'm going to tell you about a, a character today that found himself in the middle of a valley that could have destroyed just about anybody, would have destroyed just about anybody. But God set this character up to actually propel a nation into its destiny. And it's because of what this guy does that you and I are sitting in here today. And his name is Daniel. If you go with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, I want to talk to you about one of the weirdest, most wonderful, wacky characters in the whole Bible. And... uh, Studying this book came out of a season of asking the Lord, how does the body of Christ navigate itself out of this time, this season? How do we, how do we move forward in power and purity with an awareness of the presence of God, like, like in a way that actually makes the world go, I want what they've got, okay? And I realize in the middle of difficult circumstances, It's in those moments that God is shaping and forming the bride, okay? Uh, You understand that that God is not into marrying a bridezilla here. We are not the bridezilla of Christ, even though it might seem like we come across that way sometimes. The reality is is that that, uh, he will not be unequally yoked in this relationship. And he does not marry down. So he's forming his bride, his church, his people into something and he might show up in the middle of Babylon to do it, right? So we're going to talk today about, because we're kind of living in a Babylonian style world right now where it seems like there's opposition to the things of God and the values of heaven on every side. So I'm going to talk to you today about how to live in Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon without compromising the kingdom of God. Daniel gives us five really strong ways that we do that. I don't know if we, oh, we do. Look at that. That's awesome. I never use these slide things, but I thought since I'm coming to the harbor and you guys are super techie, we'll just go with it. <clears throat> techie. All right. Uh, first thing I want you to know is that Daniel has, uh, I, I looked at Daniel and I got into this deep dive into this book and I thought I would come out with all kinds of revelation on the end times because that's typically why we read Daniel because there's five visions that he has and they're about his future and they have a lot of really amazing things to say about days in the future, days ahead, the last days, end times and all that stuff. When God took me into the book of Daniel, I spent about six months in this book Recorded 11 hours of audio that are on the USB back there uh, on the on this series. I'm just going to give you a short bit of it today. But I felt like God started showing me some things about Daniel that he formed in Daniel that actually he's forming within the bride right now. And I felt like the Lord was saying, in this day, there is a rising a Daniel company, not just a singular individual, but an entire bride of people who carry these virtues, these qualities, and these traits. Why is it not just a single individual? Because the celebrity Christian culture is dying, and it's not a bad thing, right? Understand, the celebrity Christian culture has got to go, because we've gone from honor over into idolatry. And so when you start seeing, like, celebrity Christians falling, you start thinking, oh my goodness, what is happening right now? 
God is literally allowing things to be exposed both in and out of the body of Christ that brings us to a a responsibility of releasing his grace in a way that restores the fallen. Because unless we get good at restoring the fallen from within the body of Christ, fallen humanity will never, never cross the threshold of these doors because they'll, they'll look and go, wow, if they do that to their own, what would they do to us? Right? So, Jesus engaged humanity. He had no problem engaging sinners. He went after them. Say, well, why didn't he go after the sick? Why didn't he go to the cemeteries and raise all the dead? Why didn't he go to the hospitals? He went after the people who didn't know who they were, the sinners. Those were the ones he engaged. The sick, when they saw how he loved normal, regular people, the sick then were not afraid to approach him. Why? Because they knew he was safe. So he goes after the lost. He goes after the sinner that's misrepresenting themselves. And what do the sick do? They go, I want to be loved like that. And everybody who came to him got healed. He went to people who needed forgiveness and sick people who needed healing went to him. That was the trajectory. He didn't show up to fix everybody's problems. He showed up to point everybody to the Father. And Daniel does this in a radical way. First thing I want you to see about Daniel's life, five traits of Daniel's life that we've got to grab a hold of as the body of Christ. The first thing I want you to see is that in Daniel chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, Daniel has this amazing moment where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, this guy's crazy as a bag of cats. And this guy is, he's like out of his mind nuts. And he has come into Jerusalem. He's taken the city over. He's burnt down the temple, the church, been standing for 800 years. And he took all of the gold out of the temple back to his palace to party with. This is not a nice guy. He is a super wicked, evil character. Then, instead of like killing everybody in Jerusalem and killing all the Israelites, he decides he wants to grow his own church. So he goes and takes all the Jews back to Babylon to make them Babylonians. That's how he's going to grow his nation, right? So we're just going to strip them of their identity and turn them into Babylonians. Wow. In the middle of all of that, he grabs a hold of the choice young men in the city and he pulls them into his palace and makes them his slaves. And Daniel and at least three friends of his get caught up into this. And now Daniel shows up and he's sitting there looking around like, what in the world am I doing here? My church has been burned down. Everything's been stolen. My identity's been stripped. His name was taken away and he was given a name that honored a demon. So now he's now not Daniel anymore. He's Belteshazzar. And so now he's sitting there like, okay, I have have no identity and I'm having to serve a wicked king who is contrary to everything that I believe and one night this king has a dream and he calls all of his wise men and magicians to himself and he says he goes hey I had a dream it really bothered me I want to know what it means but I'm not 100% sure you guys are real so here's the deal I'm gonna put you to the test You tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. How many of you know that's advanced prophetic ministry right there? And these guys go, none of us can do that. Like nobody can do that. And he goes, fine, I'm killing all of you. Doesn't just fire people, he just kills them, right? 
Daniel hears about this because he's kind of the low guy on the totem pole. He's going to get caught up in all of this. And so Daniel goes, whoa, time out. Let me go talk to God. So Daniel goes to God and God gives him both the dream and the interpretation. In Daniel chapter 2, he goes to his supervisor and Daniel says, look, I've got the dream and I've got the interpretation and I'll give it to the king, but don't kill anybody. Now, this is an interesting line that might seem really fascinating just to gloss over, but it's really important. Because, see, the people that he is defending here, they were not drawing their spiritual power from God. These were Babylonian magicians. These people were given over to the occult, demonic influence. Wouldn't it have been so much easier for Daniel just to think, yeah, let's let the king wipe these people out. That way the evil competition is gone. And then I can minister the gospel freely. But that's not what Daniel does. He goes, look, I'll tell you the dream and I'll tell the interpretation. Just don't kill any of these people. Daniel defends the life of wicked people, which is amazing. And this is the very first trait that Daniel has. Daniel actually develops a supernatural compassion for wicked people. So much so that when he goes to prophesy over King Nebuchadnezzar, and and even other kings, King Darius and King Nebuchadnezzar, these guys are both not good people. And when he goes to prophesy over them, by the time he gives them a word from God, if it's a negative word, sometimes it'll come out like this. Daniel will say, oh, king, live forever. Word to God, this word, we're for your enemies and people who hate you and not for you. What? I mean, wouldn't you just love to give a negative word to a politician you don't like? Daniel literally stands before a king who burnt his church down, stole his identity, took his entire nation captive, and somehow in Daniel there has been now a supernatural compassion. Daniel literally learned to love his enemies. Something happened here in him, and what it does is it starts to give him incredible favor. How many of you know, like, the evil, wicked, occultic magicians that he saves their life? How many of you know, if you want spiritual power and some guy who serves a different power than you comes in, has more power, and he saves your life and goes to bat for you, how many of you know everything you believe goes out the window and suddenly you're his disciple? And this is exactly what happens. Later on in Daniel chapter 10, when he has his final vision, he's surrounded in this vision by a whole bunch of other people who are with him in this moment. And they all have the same experience, and they're terrified. Who are those people? The magicians of Babylon who suddenly said, I want what you've got. So the first thing Daniel does, he learns to love his enemies by developing a supernatural heart of compassion for wicked people. It's interesting because when Jesus said, love your enemies, he wasn't joking. And then he defines what that looks like. He says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you, and do good to those who mistreat you. It's fascinating because you think it like this. Um, First John, John said like this. He says, nobody has ever seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God abides in us. What is he saying there? He's saying God is concealed 
in us. He hides himself in you. He's concealed and hidden behind our hatred and our anger. He's revealed when we love one another. By this, all men will know. The Bible says that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. Where does he show up to this world? In the love of his children as we pour out his grace into this world. It's amazing how that works, but it's true. Right now, the church is angrier than it's ever been, and justly so. And the world is more confused about God than ever. We're meant to actually unveil and reveal him to this world. And this is how it's done. Jesus said, love your enemies. It's the most difficult message of Jesus to pervert. You can't pervert that one. You can only ignore it and do something different. First thing Daniel does is he decides he's going to learn how to love his enemies. And he actually does it. The second thing Daniel does is when Daniel uh, uh, has this, this radical transformation of life where all of his certainty goes away, Daniel uh, literally doesn't push back against much of anything. It's kind of weird. It's like they burn the temple down. We don't see Daniel freaking out about that. Uh, they, they take all the people captive. We don't see Daniel freaking out about that. They take his name away and more. There's kids in the room, so I'm not going to talk about that. But they take his name away and more. And not only that, when it's all said and done, he's not freaking out about any of it. He seems to literally be going along with it. But Daniel is not complacent. He's not a pacifist, and he's not a wimp either. What Daniel is literally doing is it seems like in every moment he's living by the word of the Lord. He's literally saying in every moment, God, what do I do here? What do I do here? What do I do here? And God, at one point, does put on Daniel's heart to push back against something. And this is what Daniel pushes back against. When he's finally in the king's palace, they offer him food from the king's table. And Daniel goes, no. Okay, I got an issue here. Daniel, you didn't push back on the burning down of the temple or the changing of your name, but the king offers you a filet mignon and you're like, no, I'm gonna go have a carrot stick. What? What was Daniel doing? God was cultivating. Listen to this. This is the hardest one of these five things. This is the hardest one for me personally. God was cultivating in Daniel a desire to live by the word of the Lord, even when it didn't make sense. It's as if Daniel could have said, I don't need to hear from God. When they burn the church down, when they burn the temple down, when they take away my name, I have a right to fight against that. Here's the deal. Don't fight and die on any hill God hasn't given you grace for. Every day, my email inbox is filled with people wanting to put my my life into a headlock to their good, virtuous, and godly cause that would take away all of my attention off of everything else that God has called me to do. And here's something that Tracy and I have had to learn. We've had to learn what to say no to. And it's amazing when you say no to somebody's good, righteous, and godly cause, how they suddenly think you're in some kind of compromise. And the crazy part about it is, I go to the Lord and I say, God, what do I do? Do I give my time to this? And I hear the Lord say no bless it and go do what I've told you to do and I realize much of the church right now is dying on hills that God hasn't called them to fight on 
Daniel literally learned that there are a million good hills that you can go and wage a battle on all day long, but you got to find the one that God's called you to. And then don't get offended when everybody else doesn't follow you. Why? Because maybe God hasn't called them to fight on that hill. Daniel literally learned to listen, by, listen to the voice of the Lord and live by it. And when Daniel finally does push back on something, it's like God moves on his heart. Do not do that. Eat vegetables instead and I'll favor you. And I, if I'm Daniel, I'm thinking, you know, this makes no sense. Who cares if I have a steak? Come on. That doesn't matter. This stuff over here matters. That stuff doesn't matter. And God's like, look, I'm not calling you to determine what matters and what doesn't matter. I'm calling you to listen to my voice because that's what matters most. This is where we got to get to as the body of Christ is we've got to learn to live by the voice of God when there's so many things vying for your attention, causes vying for your attention. And listen, let me tell you how I know that I'm on a hill that God hasn't called me to. I left my peace at the bottom of it. I get riled up, I get stirred up, I get angry, but it's not righteous indignation. Why? Because now I'm not loving my enemies, I'm seeking their destruction. And somewhere at the bottom of that hill, I left my peace. And suddenly, now I find myself swinging a sword on top of a hill God hasn't given me grace for. Drop the sword, go back and get your peace and find the word of God for your life. Okay? Other people might say, well, you're in compromise. No, you're surrendered to the voice of the Lord. Daniel learned how to do this, and it mattered to an entire nation, as we're going to see in a second. The third thing Daniel did, and this is Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, he finds, Daniel chapter 9, he finds, um, he finds the, the scroll of Isaiah. Not Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet was a contemporary of Daniel's. They lived about the same time. Jeremiah would have been between 30 and 50 years older than Daniel. And Jeremiah was prophesying in his day to Jerusalem, hey guys, uh, you guys are going to be taken captive into Babylon. Babylon's going to come in and it's going to take you and, and you guys are going to go into captivity. Well, nobody wanted to hear that word, obviously. So they ignored Jeremiah over and over and over again. Jeremiah believed in the word of the Lord that he had, and he, with a small remnant of people, leaves and he goes to Egypt. So Jeremiah never went into Babylonian captivity. If you ever ask, whatever happened to Jeremiah? Well, it's interesting because legend has it, if you do a kind of a deep dive into Jeremiah's life, legend has it, he takes and goes with this remnant of people down to Egypt. When he gets down there, he finds that there is a lot of crocodiles and a lot of snakes. And so he prays and God takes the crocodiles and the snakes away. This becomes kind of local folklore around the area. But one day, Jeremiah prophesies over a group of people that heard the word and didn't like it, and they stoned him to death. That's how Jeremiah meets his end. They bury Jeremiah, give him honor. The remnants of people that came down there with him give him honor. But he was so legendary for the power that he carried that whenever somebody finally, snakes come back, crocodiles come back. And when somebody gets bit by a viper, they actually would go to Jeremiah's grave, take the dust off the grave, put it on the snake bite, and they'd be healed. Alexander the Great hears about this, goes to Egypt, digs up Jeremiah's body, takes it all the way back to Alexandria, and we never hear from him again. So, crazy. Why? I mean, like, wow, what a crazy character this guy was. He had, he had more power in death than I think many of us walk in in life. Just kind of wild how that guy was just wired to the voice of the Lord. 
But during Daniel's life, it seems like nobody paid attention to Jeremiah's words until after they were in Babylonian captivity. Because in Daniel chapter 9, he finally reads what Jeremiah wrote about and what he said. And Daniel has a realization. Jeremiah was right. This is true. And we are actually in the middle of something God orchestrated. Now, when you find yourself in the middle of the will of God, and it seems like a negative circumstance, what do you do? Daniel prays. He actually asks God for something in the middle of his will. And this is legal, by the way. Moses and God had a great relationship, and one day God comes to Moses and said, Moses, stand back. I'm wiping out all the children of Israel, These, your people that you brought out of Egypt. And Moses goes, time out. I, I didn't bring them out. You did. And they're not my people. They're yours. And what are the surrounding nations going to say if you kill them all? God can't defend his own people. And God goes, eh, you're right. In your good old-fashioned King James Bible, it literally says, much to the discomfort of so many people, that God repented. In other words, God was looking for a relationship with people where he could literally have a conversation. And every now and then, God would push on an area of Moses' life, and Moses would push back, and it would expose something of the nature and the character of the compassion of God in Moses' heart. What was God doing? He was bringing something out of Moses. All right? Daniel, he discovers from the words of Jeremiah, God has orchestrated this whole Babylonian thing. Oh, my goodness. We are right in the middle of the will of God. And Jeremiah called it. He says it's going to last for 70 years. What do I do? So Jeremiah chapter 9 is a prayer. This is Jeremiah asking God to change the circumstances in the middle of his will. You can do that when you have a relationship with somebody, by the way. And look in verse 20. I'm just going to show you here a couple of verses. Now while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication. Everybody say the word supplication. Not a word we use a lot. But it's an important word because it simply means to ask for grace for people who don't deserve it. Supplicating. I'm going and I'm doing a favor by asking for grace for people who don't deserve it. He says, while I was doing all this on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is angel, angel Gabriel, whom I'd seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Now listen, sometimes when you ask God to show up in the middle of a circumstance, Sometimes he'll change the circumstance. He's just cool that way. He's amazing and he's good. But sometimes God will show up and actually give you insight, revelation, understanding, and wisdom in the middle of the circumstance so that you can see his hand at work in what's going on in your life. And suddenly you find yourself strengthened. Pretty soon it's not the circumstance that's crushing you. You're crushing the circumstance. See, now you literally are fortified to walk out of the valley of the shadow. Why? Because you realize I'm not in here alone. All right. He says, while I'm doing this, in the middle of all this, the angel shows up, says, I'm giving you insight and understanding. In verse 23, and this is an important verse, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. This is interesting because Daniel starts by wailing to God. 
praying, talking, speaking. He does five things, but he gets to the end of his prayer, and this is what he says. Back up with me, verse 19. He says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. In other words, do something now. When he got to the part about releasing grace, that's the supplication. Forgive. And it seems like, almost like as if God is saying, wait, hold, hold, hold. The minute that Daniel asked for grace, that was a moment where God pulled the trigger and said, now, go. Here's the third thing Daniel does, and that is Daniel has in him a heart to ask God for grace, not just for himself, but for his nation. It is totally legal for you to ask God for grace for your nation. And the church has got to lead the way in that. Why? Because the world doesn't know how. The world is into cancel culture. Why? Because we invented that. I don't know if you know, but in the spirit, they follow physically with what we allow in the spirit. We invented cancel culture, you guys. I can think of a ton of, of ministers that in, in the culture of the body of Christ have been canceled for any number of reasons. And if you hang out in church for very long, you're going to find yourself canceled by other Christians too. Why? Because we have the corner market on judgment. We've learned how to judge. And we become famous for judgment, and we make God famous for judgment when he's supposed to be famous for love. When Daniel looks at the nation of Israel and he realizes God orchestrated this, something of compassion is stirred in Daniel's heart. And he goes, God, pour out grace upon your people. Pour out grace upon this land. Pour out grace upon me. I need it. Pour out grace upon my nation even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is for. Grace is for people who don't deserve it. God only saves, delivers, and heals, and gives grace to people who don't deserve it. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but it's true. He doesn't look for people who are deserving it. He gives it away freely to people who don't. That's why it's called grace, and that's why it's so amazing. Fourth thing Daniel does, if you go to Daniel chapter 10, on the home stretch here, in Daniel chapter 10, he finally has, he has his most radical encounter yet. And in this encounter, the fifth and final encounter, Daniel has had a life, by the way, with God that is extraordinary. And every time Daniel has an angelic encounter, Daniel is trembling. And this one is no exception. When the angel shows up, Daniel's freaked out, trembling on his face on the ground before God. I've never understood people who have angelic visitations. And if you've been in this church for any, any length of time, you know that there's people that do uh, on a regular basis. People who have angelic visitations and like, yeah, I was just at home and an angel showed up and sat on the bed and we had a chat. This has not been my experience. Anytime I've ever had an angelic encounter, it's always left me freaked out. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not quite a pro, but then I look at Daniel's life and it makes me feel a whole lot better. I'll tell you, I got time. I'll tell you the, the weirdest, one of the weirdest angelic stories ever. Tracy and I and our friend Alex Morales, who's a pastor in Austin, Texas now, 
Uh, we were in Boston. This has been many years ago, and we were in Boston, uh, and, and in between sessions and a conference, they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go see Cheers, because I'm a child of the 80s, right? So they said, yeah, it's down at Boston Commons. So we drive down to Boston Commons. It's a big, giant park in the middle of the city. We park on one of the corners of, of the commons in a parking garage and, and realize that Cheers is on the other side of the park. Fine, we'll walk there. It's a cold day. And uh, as we were walking down the sidewalk, just about to enter the park, up next to a building is the guy. He's sitting there, and he's obviously a homeless guy. And uh, he's got a, a little styrofoam cup with a chunk torn out of it to put money in. And he's holding it like this, and he's just sitting on the curb, and he's got his hand kind of propped up on his knee. And I looked at him, and here's the thing that caught my attention about him. He had a, a, a like he'd been in a fight. His eye, one eye was swollen shut. He had a big old black eye, and he had a split lip, and his mouth was bleeding. And I looked over there, and initially, typically, what happens, if I see somebody that's like homeless and needs something or whatever, and I have the means to bless them, compassion hits your heart. When you move in love, you move in power every single time. So I look over there, but this is not compassion that hits me, and it's not judgment either. This is like... I suddenly have this sense that I'm in the presence of something here that is not of this world. Kind of weird. And some of you, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Where you've like been engaging and you suddenly go, oh, okay, something's going on here that's different, right? Because sometimes, sometimes angels show up and they look like us, okay? The Bible actually says, be careful how you treat strangers because you entertain angels without even knowing it. As a matter of fact, I would say this. I'll go on a limb and say, I believe every one of you have had an angelic encounter, whether you knew it or not. Okay? So in this case, I just kind of like to be aware. And so in this moment, I'm, I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, is that an angel? I've got money in my pocket and I think, he doesn't look like he's going anywhere. I'm going to go to the other side of the park. When I come back, if he's still here, I'll either give him money or engage with him. But I'm not 100% sure. I get to the other side of the park, and there's Cheers, and it's a long ways away, and we walk diagonal from corner to corner in this park, and I get to Cheers, and I look, and in front of Cheers is the exact same guy sitting up against the building, right next to Cheers. Same guy, same styrofoam cup with the chunk taken out, same black guy, same split lip, and he's just sitting there, and now I know, I know this is an angel. Because there's no way, unless he sprinted to get around there, there is no way that he's both there and now here, right? So I'm like, okay. But I don't say anything to Alex and Tracy because I'm, I'm still like not 100% sure what I'm going to do with this. Now, if you've ever had, if you've ever had like this idea in your mind, if I have like a supernatural experience or an encounter with God, I got questions, I wanna have a conversation, I wanna get some wisdom and revelation, you think of all the things you wanna say, I do the same thing, right? So this is what I think in my mind. Okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna approach him just yet. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk back to the other corner of the park, and, and if he's still there, same guy is over there, then I will know 100% for sure that's an angel, and then I'm going to talk to him. So now I've got a long walk back across the park, and I'm looking over my shoulder. Still there, way in the distance. I'm now I get to the other side of the park, boom, same guy, still there. All the way across the park, I'm thinking of questions. I've got questions. I'm going to engage an angel, a messenger from God. I'm actually going to talk to him. And I got questions. And I'm thinking of all these questions. I got like a list of five in my head. So <clears throat> I said to Alex, see that guy? You notice that guy? It's an angel. All right, here we go. And Alex is like, what? 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 Right. So 
I walk toward him. Tracy's standing over here. Alex is behind me. And I walk up to this guy and I reach into my pocket and I go to pull some money out. And I get down on one knee and I put money in his cup and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, I know who you are. God and my wife, my friend Alex, as my witness, and when he tells this story, it's way funnier because um, he freaked out. <clears throat> I put the money in his cup, and I'm looking him straight in the eye. and doesn't say a word. His eye, a black eye, heals up, just shh. Split lip comes together, and the blood goes away, and he smiles at me. Alex, right behind me, is going, whoa, whoa, Here's what I do. I stand up like I'm, like I'm in the military, turn like this, and start walking. I, all of my questions went out the window, Savannah. I'm like, I am, I have nothing. I'm like, I'm not worthy to be here. I got to get out of here. I got to get this quickly. And Alex is like, did you see that? Where, where are we going right now? What is happening? This is what I do when I suddenly have an awareness that this is not just a hunch. I actually am in the presence of something where I'm touching the, the presence of the Lord. Is all of my questions go away. And this is what I've discovered. If that happens in the presence of an angel, you know, sometimes people think, you know, when I get before God one day, when I'm there, I got questions about all the junk that happens to me in my life. Why was this happen? Why did that happen? Why was I, be- you weren't there for, da, da, da. you know? The minute you get before the Lord, all the questions are just going to go away. I'm just convinced of this. All of our questions go away when you get an encounter with the presence of God. You just suddenly have this awareness. There's something bigger, more powerful, and better than I ever thought was possible here. And uh, I walked away from that encounter, and I trembled for hours. I mean, literally just sitting there just going, I'm just not a pro at this thing. Then I read about Daniel, and I'm like, I get it. Daniel has the same thing. It says in verse 10, it says, A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I've now been sent to you. When he spoke this word to me, I stood up trembling. And this is verse number 12, uh, verse 12 and number 4 and 5, and it's together. The angel tells him two major keys to answered prayer. And the third, uh, the fourth and fifth thing that Daniel learned that we have got to learn as the church. He says this, from the first day you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before God, your prayer was heard. Fourth thing is this, Daniel, didn't matter how many angelic encounters he had, didn't matter how many spiritual experiences he had, he set himself to be a student. He set his heart to understand. He stayed teachable, absolutely stayed teachable in the presence of God. Like, God, strip away everything I think I know. I'm letting go of all of my own wisdom, my own understanding, and God, in your presence, I'm just a student. Teach me. Never become an expert in the things of God to where you can't learn something new. I always like to say this, and I probably have said this every year since I've been preaching here for the last 10 years or so. Every time I come to God, I come to God with questions, and he doesn't answer my questions. He questions my answers. And then he gives me, like, new questions. So I always kind of walk away from that moment with more questions than I started with. So just 
If you guys had known me like 20 years ago, that would have been so much more convenient because I knew everything back then. And now, I know less than I did then, but I'm more confident in his goodness. That makes sense? Yeah. Stay teachable and humble before God. That's the last one. Stay humble before God. Stay humble before God. Never confuse insecurity with humility. Insecurity is not humility any more than arrogance is greatness. Just because somebody demonstrates insecurity, that doesn't mean that they're humble. You don't have to leave greatness behind to become humble. Greatness exists in the presence of God. It's given freely by the presence of God. It's given freely in that place of union with God. But it ought to cause us to leave pride to the side. You have a choice. Even in the presence of God, you can pick up pride and arrogance. That's exactly what Lucifer did. He chose pride and arrogance instead of a a, a humility. There's something in the presence of God where you and I encounter greatness and we find ourselves humbled and in awe and filled with wonder. And one of the things about the Lord in the new covenant that he invites us into is this posture of union where you and I can come boldly and with confidence before the throne of grace, the Bible says, so that we find mercy in time of need. But we don't come cocky. We don't come arrogant. We come with confidence and with boldness, but there's always a humility about our our posture with the presence of God. I never want to get to the place where I'm so familiar with the presence of God that I become nonchalant about it. You guys, the more I become familiar with the presence of God, the more I tremble at his goodness. The more that I I spend time with the presence of God, in the presence of God, aware and conscious of the Lord, the more I want to. Show me somebody who has no appetite for God, and I'll show you somebody who hasn't spent time with the Lord in a while. Why? Or at least conscious of the presence of God in a while. Why? Because in the world, you consume food to fill up your physical appetite so that you won't be hungry anymore. In the spirit, it's exactly the opposite. The more you taste of his goodness, the more you want. But the desire doesn't come from a place of lack. It comes from a realization of what you have access to that now changes everything. Suddenly, when you taste of his goodness, it's, it's, it's like nothing else satisfies and you want more of that. Daniel literally learned how to stay humble before God. So these five things Daniel did. If you're taking notes, they're all up on the screen for you. All of these things we've got to learn. You say, well, what does it matter? What does it matter that I do all this stuff? That's hard, Bill. Those are hard things to learn, especially when we're living in the time of Babylon right now, like 2022. It's like Babylon, especially here in the United States. Bill, how can I, what, what does it matter if I do this stuff? I'll tell you why it matters more than you and I can imagine. 400 years after Daniel dies, He never does go back to Israel, by the way. He stays. He stays in Babylon. He seems to just stick around and minister to these people, and he sends people back. He prepares Israel for freedom. 400 years after Daniel dies, in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ is born. And interestingly enough, in Daniel's day, he got three really important keys to the coming of the Messiah. He read in Isaiah, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Ah, he knows how he's coming. The second thing he got from the prophet Micah, which said, Bethlehem, out of you shall come your king, O Israel. Then he knew where he was coming. But in 
Daniel chapter 9, he got a vision of 70 weeks. And in the middle of it, it says at the end of this time, 70 weeks, meaning it's 490 years roughly. But toward the end of that time, it says the Messiah will be cut off. And he's like, whoa, that means he's already got to be here. So he knows when he's coming. Now, Daniel has three super important keys of information that are really important because the, the Jewish people, their whole life and existence was wrapped up in the coming of the Messiah. Messiah was going to change everything. Daniel has three keys. He has the how, he has the where, and he has the when. So now he's also got disciples. He's got people that are listening, going, I want to know God like you know. I want to know what's important. Well, Daniel would have known Isaiah. He would have known it by heart. He would have ministered to these people the importance of the coming of the Messiah, and especially when he got the how, the when, and the where. That would have been something he would have given to these people, and they held on to it, not just for a few years. They held on to it for centuries. So much so to the point that Jesus, when he's born, the prophets in his time, in his day, in his own country, didn't even catch his birth. But you know who did? The Bible says, wise men from the east. Scripture actually calls them magi. It's a Persian word where we get the word magician from. From the east, in the direction of what had formerly been Babylon. Persians, Persians with a connection to Judaism, Persian Jews. As a matter of fact, if you go to where Daniel is buried today, it's a little town called Susa in Iran. It's where Esther lived, Queen Esther lived. And Daniel, there's a shrine to Daniel there. And up until 1979, it was filled with Persian Jews. And in this shrine, they still tell stories of the 400-year-long discipleship program where Daniel passed down the story, his descendants of the Magi generation after generation passed down the story of the coming of the Messiah that was told by Daniel to the point when the time came and they watched, by the way, the stars because their, their ancestors were also astrologers, so they were familiar with the stars. Now they learn about God. They're looking for signs in the heavens. Where does God hang it? He hangs a star in the heavens. They've got the how, they got the when, they got the where. How do we know these people have a relationship with God? Because after they get to worshiping Jesus and giving the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and all the money that they gave that funds the little family's journey to Egypt. After all of this, they have a supernatural dream where God appears to them and tells them to go home a different way. They're not freaked out. They actually obey it. This tells us these people had a relationship with God. So what does Daniel's lifestyle do? He imparts a four-century-long discipleship program that kept people fixated on the coming of Christ for 400 years. Let me just put it a different way. Daniel was so committed to the word of the Lord, he could look, overlook the offense that he was standing surrounded by. The offense of the burning down of the temple of stone... Because he could see across the time that he was investing his life in the temple of flesh. That is the incarnation of God stepping into humanity. The living, breathing temple of God walking here on earth. And Daniel's descendants of his disciples are the first to sow financially and in worship into the incarnation. That's why... All these five things matter 
more than you and I can imagine. We live today in Babylon again, and God is raising up a Daniel company. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Julie, have you come and join me up here? Father, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us as your body how to live in compassion without compromise to the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that right now by the power of your spirit that you would pour the oil of refreshing out upon the harbor on South Florida, on this region. God, that you would give us a clarity of perspective to hear your voice like never before. And Father, if there's any in this room today who've never said yes to you, may today be the day that we say, Jesus, I give you my life, my heart, and by faith I lay hold of the grace that you give me freely. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Father, I pray that you continue to pour your healing out through this house to a world that needs to know you so badly. Thank you, Jesus. And everybody say Thanks for tuning in to the Harbor Church Podcast. I hope that you were enriched, inspired, and blessed by what you heard. Please subscribe on the podcast app and be sure to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also download our Harbor Church mobile app. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.